And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the, around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4, 8, a passage of Scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth. If they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to, to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally. And yet, when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like, it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life, actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here now. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, we know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight a reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that, that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely. And, I, and this is what we've shown in, in the, in the, uh, from the science and from the, in the book, is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical, love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. 
This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice His only begotten Son on our behalf. And we, we, some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug-crazed, alcoholic-driven, uh, abusive father. And so the notion of being able to equate a loving heavenly Father who sacrifices His Son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right. And that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of uh, bringing our thoughts into captivity. How can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point. And um, I, put it, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons and influence the proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So pro-BDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then this enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing your firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior. But can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit. You're still producing the enzyme. You're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger. And so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. 
So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So if if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and, and as a result um, has, has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships as we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is, uh, in our book, we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence, and we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, all Scripture is given by God for inspiration, inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then Scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups, all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the... the uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and, and reinventing, so to speak, 
the way we think of God and ultimately relate to him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Life Live. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now, we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor is ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world. Uh, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And yet for a lot of us, uh, the Great, the great um, Commandment, yeah, we, we can do okay with that, but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged, particularly in this day and age, in fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the Great Commission. Um, that sense of sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative, they want to get into an argument with you, you are fearful perhaps because you just don't want confrontation, you've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective apologetics. And Donald, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a BA in theology um, from San Jose Christian College. So you've been here in the Bay Area, an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University and an MA in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well-known schools and received quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I? <laughs> well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who uh, don't necessarily have the conversational debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions, or that coworker, and it's specifically addressed to show you that, yeah, you can have a constructive conversation with even the most uh, hardened skeptic. And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, 
uh, verbal skills at confrontation, uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter 3.15. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the, the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end. So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age, and you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of, of some of the, of the intellectual prowess of our Bay Areans here who uh, tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and, and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid confrontation, um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments, and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this? I just wonder how much of this goes to just the heart of a lot of believers today being you know, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand Christianity. So it's not so much, you're right, it's not so much that it's a battle between two people, but a constructive relationship-building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix. Sadly, oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith, meaning they're, they're, they're put on the defensive, and so here we might feel um, wholly short answer challenges concerning the, uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to uh, observations about so-called uh, errancy in Scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distown, distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or, or the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from? Yeah, I think that's the key, is first of all to, to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have, you know, tell me a little bit about your life, and if you have any experience in Christianity or the Church, and then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world, as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life? I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay, tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true, not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. 
And I think if you set out your conversation, just, just trying to find out those three uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not, not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or, or some sort of uh, sarcastic comment, you know, just, just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's, it's given you a chance to then compare the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And, and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of worldviews, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity, and then we can, uh, we can talk on that level. So it's a lot of clarification and sharing the Bible, or sharing the gospel then in a non-confrontational, very relational way. You use a word that I want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a timeout. You use the word relational, and I think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic. My guest is Donald Day Johnson. This is his new book, by the way, newly published by to put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reach a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic? Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight. A look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now, you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You use the word relational or relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is about, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith, as we talk about what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ in the hope of what? That someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. Makes it a lot less intimidating that way, if you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. But skeptics don't want to think of themselves as a project. And if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate, or even someone to get saved, or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts, and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next, next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God, and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think 
providing answers and being able to direct the conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that person's re- gives that person reason to believe that is also loving the person and so uh yeah it, it's all relational i think i mean ultimately god is love i mean love i've got a chapter on that that says love is the meaning of life i mean that's what it's all about and so yeah we we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into. It would be curious to see if in a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, at a church somewhere or um, you know, just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a, a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort. Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, that most of the um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases, uh, I think have been hurt by the church or someone in the church. There's there's an amazing number uh, of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that it, I think it, it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also, I think, careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that we're teaching some pretty weird things, and so they just reject the whole ball of wax, so to speak. Um, in, in rejecting something that is, admittedly, sort of silly, they just reject the whole thing. So, yeah, I, I would be interested to see those stats as well. Yeah, and it certainly, I think, would be very telling at the end of the day, as you point out. It's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind. Um, they're they're going to be looking at us and they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, and, and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there, and I guess at, at the, the core initially— hearing more from them. I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith, but I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get-go trying to present our case? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case, your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're, you're sort of shooting at a target that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like, that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need, there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't um, get into a, a kind of a debate. I mean, it, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it, it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction. 
Let's um, hop onto the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX. Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along. I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short? All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald? As far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love. God created us for relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as, uh, as valuable. And, and I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress. When he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife, that's how I see the whole story of the world, that we are a people who were made to love God, and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. It's like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good about. news in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure, uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with a, uh, an atheist who's certain that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift, certainly, in the 1960s and 70s, educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, uh, talk about our relationship uh, to God versus that God is. And I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh, Donald? Yeah, that's right. And that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. <laughs> they do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality. And so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, does, that, does those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it? What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of get that impression. We, we think this is a lot like, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. 
But the I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had, had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen. Uh, but not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into that we're going to have an opportunity to share with are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door or the kid who delivers the newspaper or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, et cetera, et cetera. And so which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life overnight, and so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight. So this is, in a sense, a process. So if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would, there's always the next time, isn't there? That's an excellent point, Craig. Yeah, we, we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch, right? Like, yeah. give it to me in the 30 seconds we have, and really, I mean, that's... I mean, I get that, I understand that, but yeah, real life doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you you are building relationships with people. You're you're talking to them over time, and yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument even or your or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily. Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Thanks, Craig. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest. The book is called How to Talk to a Skeptic. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with with the the hardline, almost professional skeptics, uh, Donald. Uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of uh, uh, Christopher Hutchins, uh, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I've heard some of them debated or some of the arguments that they put forward. And I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views. These guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well. Yeah, no, you're right. They uh, not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right. I don't think they do a terribly good job of it, and and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold, and, and that's one key I think to talking to to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle is that they should be asked to have present their worldview, to think about it probably. I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that. And that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation, I think, is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way, not just be anti-Christian. And a lot of them are anti-Christian. We talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of, of, of the agnostic out there. And I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making a case for the existence of God? 
Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor, because if it's true, it's true, and Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is, if it's accurate, if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never be never need to be afraid of new discoveries. You know, the truth wherever it's found is going to match up. And and I think that's one key to having a good conversation is to not, you know, sometimes we present it as well. I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket and I don't have to think about it anymore and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God, God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Uh, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the ir- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of, of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and, and I guess that's the key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge, and so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of, of uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that. What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well... I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels. So why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, What I like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's, Let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview. But I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, and he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. 
And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that, are, uh, they, that come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a, a broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that, that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What but, about those that take the dismissive approach that say, well, you know, I've, I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity. And uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument? Yeah, that's a common one, and I think uh, on one hand you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, <laughs> say well, you agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know we're all sinners, we're all hypocritical at some point, uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that you know if if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners saved by grace and and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, uh, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how, that's how life is, and I apologize, if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and, and see if, if his message resonates. It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian uh, apologetics, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric. And as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus, too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or, uh, you know, be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also a Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Thank you.